Good morning. I invite you to uh, turn in your scriptures to the book of Ecclesiastes. If, uh, if you're using an old-fashioned non-electronic Bible, uh, if you open your Bible in the very middle, there's a very good chance it'll open up to either Psalms or Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes is right after the book of Proverbs. We're in chapter 3. If you uh, have a pew Bible, um, you can just open to page 705, and you'll be able to find where we are. I'm going to read verses 9 through 19. What gain has the worker for his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into our hearts, into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was, even there there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter for every work, and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. One of my closest high school friends had a sister. Their, their family was, was pretty artistic. They were, um, as a family, they were into drama. And so this youngest sister and their family went off to college and she majored in theater. And, and it wasn't terribly surprising. Uh, my, my friend majored in music. He played the French horn. And so to see his, his youngest sister go off and major in theater was not that shocking. They, they had been involved in productions with the Colonial Players here in town for, for many years. I remember uh, some seasons where their whole family would be in the same production uh, downtown. And a bunch of us would go and, and watch them perform as a family but I guess it was probably some, some capstone component to her bachelor's degree when she got toward the end of, of college where she put on a one-actor performance. It was this, this production where she was the only performer on the stage. And she would, she would speak and portray one particular, you know, part in the play she would speak from one perspective one voice and then 
she, being the only actor in the, in the whole thing, would, would then go and respond. And she would have a different voice. And she would portray a different character in response to the first character. And it would go back and forth like this. And frankly, it was kind of confusing. Just to kind of picture this one person trying to play multiple parts, it felt sort of schizophrenic at first. But it didn't take very long before you, you start to catch on. You started to realize, okay, this is what's happening. And then it was easier to follow and it was easier to make sense of what she was doing and, and, and the flow of the narrative of the story. Well, the reason I share that with you is because Ecclesiastes is a lot like a one-actor drama. The author speaks from different roles with different perspectives. Sometimes he speaks from the perspective of a secularist. The word secular literally means present day. So in some sense, we're all secular. We all live in the present day. To not be secular would be to be irrelevant. But a secularist is someone who looks at this present day world this present moment, the things that we see about this world. And a secularist says, this is all there is. What we see, this empirical, scientifically discernible world. And so there are some times when the writer of Ecclesiastes is speaking as a secularist. And then there are other times when, when he speaks as if he's a believer as if he believes that there is something beyond this world that we see here. The, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, as, as you would know if you've been here the last couple of weeks, he refers to, he talks about this modern-day world or this contemporary, scientifically discernible world as the world or life under the sun. Everything that exists under the sun, everything that we can see, everything we can experience firsthand, that's the real world the secularist says. But there are other times when, when he speaks as if he believes that there is something beyond life under the sun, that there is a God, or that there is some transcending purpose or meaning or truth beyond life under the sun. And, and he switches back and forth between these two voices, between these two perspectives, often without giving us a clear signal that it's changed. And for that reason, reading the, the book of Ecclesiastes can be difficult, especially if you don't know what's happening, what's he doing, and when he's doing it. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the writer of Ecclesiastes, often referred to as the teacher, he's making an argument. And his main contention is this. He's saying, if life under the sun is all that there is, then life is empty. It's meaningless. It's vanity, he says. And ultimately, he's making the argument that life under the sun is not all there is. He's trying to persuade us that, that just seeing this world, this life under the sun as this is all there is, that that's not real. That reality is not confined to just this present day. But there really is an ultimate reality that includes God and includes a transcending meaning and purpose to our life. And so we come to chapter 3 where 
he basically comes out and he says, if you just look at this world as life under the sun, our life is a crapshoot. Now, I know you say, well, okay, that, that phrase doesn't exist in my Bible. Okay, you're right. And I could say, oh, trust me, it, it, it's in the Greek or the Hebrew, right? But it's not. But I do think that that's the point that he, that he starts off making. He's saying, listen, if life under the sun is all there is, then everything about our life really is random. And it's meaningless. And here's, here's really how he says it. He, he gives us two conclusions that he has come to about looking at life just under the sun. He says, if life under the sun is all there is, then he says, then, then there is no progress and there is no justice. We're not going anywhere and we can have no confidence that ultimately everything will be made right. You'll notice that, that when I began to read this passage, I started in verse 9. And, and if you looked at the verses that come before verse 9, very likely you saw verses 1 through 8 and you said, Oh, that's the part of Ecclesiastes that I know the best. And he skipped right over it. Right? Because verses 1 through 8 are the, are the part that seems very poetic and very beautiful where he says there is a, there is a time. For everything, right? For all things under heaven, there is a season. And then he gets into this very poetic, there's a time to plant, there's a time to harvest, there's a time to sow, there's a time to reap, there's a time to kill, a time to, to, to be reborn. And it's all these beautiful things. And, and if, I, if I had been better prepared, then I would have had a choir up here, and I would have read that, and I would have just had them singing, turn, 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 in the background. But here's, but here's the reality. Verses 1 through 8, I don't believe are intended to be beautiful. I don't think they're intended to be something that we write a beautiful song about and say, oh, isn't that lovely? Because what he's really saying is, if, if this world, this life that we experience here under the sun is all there is, then this is what it's about. You plant and you pick. You kill and people are born. I mean, it's just, okay, you live and you die. You work and you're tired. And then this and then that. And there's this rhythm of that we do this over and over and over and over again. And he gets to verse 9 and basically he says this. What's the game? We're not getting anywhere. We're just doing the same thing over and over again. It's kind of like Groundhog Day. Except he didn't know what Groundhog Day was. And then he also says that there's no justice. That, that the ideas of, of good and evil are just kind of random. That, that things like joy and suffering, they just happen. For no apparent reason. I mean, you got people over here, they seem to do everything right in their life, and they suffer. And then you get people over here, they don't seem to pay attention to anything virtuous, and yet their life goes fine. What's with that? He says in verse 16, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. 
in the place of righteousness, the places that we ought to be able to find justice and righteousness, even there is wickedness. So do you see the problem that he's facing? He's trying to make sense of life under the sun. If this is all there is, then what do we do with this? And I have to say that the writer of Ecclesiastes is not the the only person who has ever tried to make sense of life under the sun. There's been lots of people throughout human history that have have tried to reason with this and to make sense of it and to try to understand it. Let me share with you a couple of, of the ways that I think we, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether philosophically or just emotionally, deal with this experience of life under the sun that we all face. Sometimes we, we approach it with what might be called kind of a stoic approach, where we, we, we look at, at the world that we live in. It seems to be kind of senseless. Why some people suffer, why, why there is injustice, why there is pain. And we say, well, it's just kind of senseless, so all you can do is just kind of press through it. You just kind of have to persuade yourself to not care about it, and you just have to go through it. That's, that's really the, the mindset behind when we jokingly sometimes say, you know, you just need to rub some dirt on it. I know none of you good parents ever said that to your kids when they had a boo-boo on their knee. You don't have to say rub dirt on it. But that's kind of what we do. We, we say, look, life's unfair. Life is random sometimes. You just got to get over it. That's, that's really stoicism. We think of stoicism as having no emotion, but that's really what it is. You just can't let it bother you. You just got to move on. Sometimes what we do is we, we try to rescue good from evil by saying this. You know, yes, life is hard. There is a lot of injustice in the world. There is a lot of pain in the world. But, but that's because there are two equal and opposite forces at work in the world. It's, you might call it good. You might call them evil. But good and evil are both present in the world. And, and evil is what's responsible for all the injustice in the world, for all the pain and the suffering in the world. And, and we can call it that. And there is good in the world. But here's the problem. Good is not, more, is not more powerful than evil. Good can't overcome evil. Good and evil are equal. And so, in fact, sometimes what we do is even as believers in God, we kind of go to this kind of a mindset and we try to rescue God from the presence of evil in the world. We say, well, God doesn't like evil. God is good. The problem is, as much as God would like to get rid of the evil in the world, he just can't because good and evil are equal. And so we rescue God's character by saying, you see, he really is good, but in the process, we throw him under the bus when it comes to his power because we say he would if he could, but he can't. And that value can creep in even to our belief in God. Another way that we we sometimes handle the problems of injustice in our experience of life under the sun is that we, we just kind of defy it and press against it we say look life is senseless there's a lot of injustice in the world but you know what we need to overcome it we need to defy it yes the world is full of injustice but we need to be good the world is full of randomness but we need to be virtuous you ready let's do this okay and and that's the approach we take we say let's overcome the evil with our own virtue 
The problem with that is that if you're trying to do that, believing that this world is all there is, well, then what's your basis for saying that some things are good and some things are not good? Where's your transcendent authority upon which to say what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false? The people who hold this view, I think they have to cheat. They have to grab hold of a transcendent virtue that only comes from life above the sun in order to make that work. If you're, if you're interested in, in thinking that through a little more, I would encourage you, go to YouTube and do a search on, on the debate over science and morality. The, the existence of God and whether or not God is good. And, and the debate that, you, that you'll find, you'll find it in many places on YouTube, it's, and, it's, and it's very fascinating, and I think it's very, very, very meaningful and, and worth, worth your, your time if you want to look into it. But you'll find debates between people like Christopher Hitchens and, and Richard Dawkins on the existential side, the atheist side, and then Christians like William Lane Craig, and John Lennox and, and some others. And, and they're very, very thoughtful d- dialogues. Um, anyway, I'll leave, I'll leave that with you. I think other ways that we, we try to avoid the injustice of the world is we just try to cover it over with pleasure. We try to cover it over with things that make us feel good, whether that's the pursuit of material things or the pursuit of things that make us feel better, like substances certain kinds of addictive behavior that, that help give us relief from the realities that we feel anxious about injustice or we, we have concerns or frustration about injustice, things like that. There's also what I would call the political approach to these things, which is to say, yes, there is injustice in the world, so I need to blame somebody. Right? There's things going on in the world that are unjust, and so it must be somebody's fault, so let's blame them. Let's, let, let's blame that gender. Let's blame that race. Let's blame that political party. Let's blame that however you want to de- define the tribe that you want to blame. And the problem with that, 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 that really becomes da- dangerous and, and detrimental to, to our society, is we start to say, and if I'm going to blame you, then I need to make you pay. Because if injustice has happened to me, and it's your fault, then you owe me. And so we don't, just, we don't just blame it. We look for a way to recover the damages that have been caused to us. And it divides us. Now, I would... There's others, by the way. I'm leaving some off. If you were people at the 830, say, yeah, yeah, he had others. So I'm trying to cut this shorter. But I want you to notice that all of these views, all of these approaches are essentially secularist approaches, they all, they all primarily begin with the assumption that this world that we see and we experience is all there is. And consistent with the conclusion of the teacher in Ecclesiastes, I would argue that they offer no real meaningful explanation or understanding of this life. It still leaves us with emptiness. Now, before we, we go on to, to look at the alternative response that I think the teacher does propose, and I think it's very meaningful, let me just say to, to those of you in the room who are believers, and by that I mean somebody who believes that there is a God, that that God is good and that God provides meaning and purpose for our life, 
I want to say that, that even you, and by you I mean us, me, we still fall into these ways of looking at this world. Believing in God doesn't, doesn't make us, you know, somehow unable to fall into the traps of, of these more secularist ways of thinking about our life. Because these secularist views are all around us. They're part of the air we breathe in our society. Tim Keller points out that, that individuals can profess to not be secular people. We can profess to have a faith in God. And yet at the practical level, the existence of God may have no noticeable impact on the decisions that we make and the way that we behave. I, I, I take that, that as, as kind of an indictment because I think it's true. It's true of me. I can say I believe in God. I believe that God is good. I believe that God provides meaning and purpose for my life. And yet, there's a very practical level where that belief really makes me no different than anybody else. Because he goes on to say that even if you're not a secular person, living in this secular age can have the effect of thinning out our faith. So that we have a, I, I, I love the, the picture of that, that we have a thin faith so that, that our belief in God is really just one simple choice in our life like every other choice we make rather than being this, this comprehensive framework around which we build our life. All right, so what does is, what is the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes offer to us as a more meaningful response to the injustice and the lack of progress that he sees through this secular lens. Well, he gives us two realities. And this is what, what I want to present to you this morning as, as kind of an antidote to or an alternative way of, of seeing this more through, through God's eyes. First is the idea that God is the rightful judge of the world. God is the rightful judge of the earth. And the second is that God is also the weaver of the tapestry of our lives. There really is purpose. There really is meaning because God is working. God is doing something to unfold his plan in our lives. We, here's, here's how we see it in, in the text. In verse 17, he says, I said in my heart that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. The answer to the injustice that we see in the world is the idea that God is really the righteous judge. And there will be a, a judgment, a making right of all that is unjust. And then a little earlier in verse 11, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And also he has put eternity in our hearts and yet we cannot discern what God has done from the beginning to the end. So, so taking these ideas and kind of bringing them together, what I'd like to do is I'd like to, to spend the rest of our time this morning talking to you about three things. I'd like to talk with you a little bit about judgment, about timing, and about perspective. Judgment, timing, and perspective. To start with judgment, I, I think we all recognize 
that there, there is a way that things are supposed to be. Now, why do I say that? Well, I have yet to meet a human being that does not instinctively recognize when things are not the way they're supposed to be. Have you ever thought about that? We have a way of looking at the world. We look at relationships. We look at things that happen in the world. And when things are not the way they're supposed to be, generally speaking, we don't need someone to tell us that they're not the way they're supposed to be. We know it. Because we speak against it, right? We say, that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And so I think intuitively, we all have a sense of the way things are supposed to be. And I think that's a big part of what what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying when he says that God has set eternity in our hearts. He has set within us an awareness that life is bigger than just what we see under the sun. There's something that transcends all that. There's a meaning, there's a purpose, and there's a sense of rightness and justness. And we recognize it. And we recognize when, we, when it's missing. The challenge, though, that we have is that when something is unjust, we want to make it right. Don't we? I don't know too many people that say, oh, yeah, that's unjust. Okay, I'm good with that. No, we want to make it right. We want to make it just. Because we look at where, where at the places where justice ought to be and we see that it's not there. And so we say, well, if, if, I'm, if, if, if not me, then who will do it? If not us, who will, who will bring justice to pass? The problem is we're not qualified. We're not qualified to be judges. We're not qualified to be the ones who make it all right. This was Jesus' point when, when he said very famously, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You see, we, we when we try to enter into the seat of, of, of playing the judge, we bring with us our unjustness, what the Bible refers to as sinfulness. We bring that with us, and so when we try to exercise judgment, we bring our sin with us, and therefore we're not really qualified to sit as the judge. This is why, though, that the death of Jesus is so meaningful and so powerful. Because as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we through him might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knows injustice. Injustice is what killed him, right? Jesus had broken no law. Jesus hadn't even sinned. And Pontius Pilate knew that. Pontius Pilate declared, there's nothing that I can find in this man that he has done wrong. Certainly not anything that would warrant him being executed. And so Pontius Pilate was looking for some way to wash his hands of Jesus being put to death because he didn't think there was any reason for Jesus to be put to death. And so he hearkens back to this tradition in the Roman Empire where, where at, as, as the Jewish people would prepare for Passover, 
the Roman authorities, as an act of good faith to the Jewish people, would, would pardon, they would turn loose a Jewish criminal just as kind of a gracious act. And so Pilate says, I got it. The way that I will get out of executing this innocent man, Jesus, is I'll say, look, Passover's coming. The tradition is that we pardon one of your criminals. And so I'll pardon the criminal, Jesus, and that way he won't die and, and, the, and the, the, the blood of his death won't be on my hands. But the people demanded that Jesus be crucified. And they instead demanded the release, the pardon, of another actual criminal named Barabbas. So think about what you see here. You've got someone who has no sin dying the death of a criminal so that an actual criminal might live and go free. Where are you in that story? Where am I in that story? I'm Barabbas. I'm the sinner who is, who's going free because of the death of the sinless one, Jesus Christ. Jesus knows injustice. God knows injustice. And God will judge the righteous and the wicked, the teacher says. But timing matters. In other words, we want justice. We recognize the need for justice, and we want it. But timing matters. God's weaving of the circumstances of our lives doesn't just include the what of our lives. It doesn't just include what we do and where we go and who we go there with, what happens to us. It also includes the when. When do these things, these things happen? That's part of what God is doing as he weaves the fabric of our lives together. There's a very famous encounter that Jesus had with a young man who was possessed not only by a demon, but he was possessed by many demons. You might remember the story where Jesus confronts this demon and he says, what's your name? And the demon responds by saying, legion, because there are many of us in here. And so what's interesting, though, to me is not just that there are many demons, but what, what, what's really germane to what we're talking about here is that the demons know who Jesus is. They literally call him the Son of God. So they're not, they're not denying who Jesus is. They acknowledge that he is the Son of God. But, they, but the, the demons say something very interesting. They say, have you come here to torment us before the time. See, here's what they know. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. They know that there is coming a time that Jesus is going to judge them and condemn them. But they're saying, but that time has not yet come. And it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't respond to them by saying, oh, who cares about time? Lake a fire with you. He doesn't do that. He basically implies, you're right about the time not being here yet. 
And so I'm not going to condemn you to the lake of fire, but I am going to send you into a lake. And so he sent, remember he sends them into this herd of pigs, and then the pigs all run down the hill and go drown themselves in the lake. So, so time matters. Even Jesus surrenders himself to the timing of the Father. And I think that's important for us. See, we, we want justice. Or we want things to happen in our lives. We want things to get better, right? We want that job. We think we know what's supposed to happen. I'm supposed to get that job, or I'm supposed to marry this person, or we're supposed to have kids, or we're supposed to move, and our house is supposed to sell. And, and you know, we've got all these things that we believe are supposed to happen in our life, but they're not happening yet. And we have a problem because we don't like the timing, right? Or we see the injustice of the world. And we don't understand why God isn't just bringing justice. And we get frustrated. But it's interesting that Peter, in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, says, God is not slow, as some count slowness, but he is patient, not wanting any to perish but desiring that we would come to repentance. Aren't you glad? Think about it. I know, I know we want justice. We want all the things that are wrong about this world to be made right. But at some level, aren't you glad that God has not brought judgment before you were born? Aren't you glad that God did not bring judgment before your kids were born, if you have them? Or your parents? You see, there's a reason that God is being patient because justice will make all things right but it will also bring about an undoing of everything that is unjust this brings us to perspective when i was in high school and in college i was in the marching band yeah i'm proud to say it i was in the marching band any others of you in the marching band Amen. <clears throat> so here's one of the things, though, about being in the marching band. When you're in the marching band, your, your sense of spatial awareness is really kind of determined by yard lines and hash marks and the two or three people to your right or to your left. That's, that's really how you know where you are. That's, that's how you get perspective. You... You don't, you don't really, you can't see what's going on on the other side of the field. You don't really know what this thing is we're doing here. It's just, I see yard lines, I see hash marks, I see what the people to my right and my left are doing, and that's how I know where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. But what our, our band director would do is during rehearsal times, they would say, all right, I want, every, I want one person from each squad. And in my experience, a squad was typically four, four people. And so we would take turns, one person from each squad would go up as high as they could possibly go into the bleachers, and then they would watch the band perform the show. And we would, we would get up there, you know, and we'd be tired because us band people were not athletes, you know, so we would be, you know, we'd get up to the top, we'd be out of breath, but then the band would start performing and we would be watching the band and we would just have this experience of, Wow. So that's what we're doing, right? Because you see all these shapes and all this 
you know, all, all, all these different configurations that the band is doing. Well, you don't, you don't get to see that when you're in the marching band. You're just on the ground and you're looking at, the, you're looking at lines and you're looking at the people next to you. But you don't know how, how amazing this display can really be. That's what God has. God has perspective. See, from our, from our position, it's very difficult for us to tell what God is doing. We don't see the big picture. We don't have His vantage point to be able to look down on the field to see how good and how beautiful He really is making things. And we often and regularly make the erroneous assumption that because we don't understand what, what, what he's doing, that there must not be a purpose. Think about that. How, how absurd to believe that because I don't know what the purpose is, there must not be one. God is the judge. And there's, there's a lot, I, I feel like Pastor Bruce kind of set this up this morning as if I'm going to solve all of our problems here today and I'm going to answer all of our questions. And it's really not true because next week Bruce is. <laughs> because, because here's the reality. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes and chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes are really part of the same, same progression of thought. In chapter 3, he brings up the idea of injustice. In chapter 4, he brings up the idea of suffering. And so there's, there's I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of opening the box, but next week Bruce will continue to unpack that box and to, and to lay out how is it that as God has ordered things, that as God has set eternity in our hearts and he is working all things together according to his purposes, that we really can trust him and he really is going to bring about a, a, a situation where all that is unjust and unright is going to be made right. But God is the judge and he will bring justice. And he is weaving the circumstances of our lives together according to his good and gracious plans. Because he has made all things beautiful in its time. So we can trust him. He is just and he is good. I know we're, we're out of time, but I do, I do want to and need to share with you this morning or this afternoon... Some of what, what God is doing in the weaving together of my life. Last February, there were some people uh, from outside of our church that um, contacted me and, and asked if I would consider being considered for a pastoral position that is not in this church, at a different church. Um, One of our daughter churches, Severna Park EP, has had the same senior pastor for over 35 years. And Glenn Parkinson is going to be retiring uh, in in the near future. And so back in February, they were starting the process of, of looking for someone to be the next pastor of that church. And they asked if I would consider being a part of that conversation. 
And initially, I shared this with Sandy, and we talked about this, and, and our, our response was unanimous with both of us. It was this, why would we ever want to do that? Not so much why would we want to go there, but it was why would we ever want to leave here? We love our life here. We love you. EP has been our, our spiritual home for decades now. And so why would we ever even want to consider the possibility of being anywhere else? But at the same time, one of the things that we began to wrestle with was, well, are we saying to God, no, we're not open to anything? Or what, is it, what does it really mean to be open to the possibility that God could weave aspects of our life in a way that's different from what we had in mind? And so we agreed to enter that conversation. And so over the last six months or so, God has basically been working in, in the hearts and minds of the folks who have, we've been talking with at Severna Park EP, as well as in our hearts, that have brought them and us to the place that we, we believe that God actually seems to be calling us to be there. And that's been a very difficult um, process for us to be in because as, as is the case with anything new, you know, uh, hopefully you would hope for me that I would have some enthusiasm for this, right? And, and I do, we do. But at the same time, going someplace new means leaving someplace that we love, people that we love. And that is very hard. We're very torn. And so um, here's, here's where we are in this process. And I'm just kind of letting you know, um, it is not official that, that I'm going to be the pastor at Severna Park. Um, there are a couple of steps that still have to be made. I'm going to go and preach there next Sunday. Um, it's kind of part of the process of being the candidate, being introduced to the congregation. And then a week after that, the congregation is going to have a congregational meeting, and they're going to vote. And if they vote to have me be their next pastor, then I will become their next pastor. And the timeline for that, what, what I've suggested and, and everybody seems to be on board with, is that I would remain here at EP with you for October and November, and then I w- we would then make the transition and, and start uh, our ministry at Severna Park and celebrate Christmas with them as we get started. Um, the likelihood, humanly speaking, is that usually when you get to this point, the next steps don't, they, they, they typically go forward. Um, I suppose it's possible that God could lead their congregation to say, we don't like that guy. I could go there next week and I could preach and lay an egg or, or teach some kind of heresy or something. Um, but those things notwithstanding, very often what happens at this point is it, it tends to go forward. Um, and so I just, would, I just wanted to share this with you. Um, you guys mean the world to us. Uh, you, you're such a huge part of our lives. We love this church. We're so grateful for, for what God has done in our lives through you um, and just having the privilege to be able to serve here with you and with Bruce and with the other staff. Um, we, would, we, would, we would very much appreciate your prayers as, as you think about us. Um, just for the confirmation of these next uh, last steps, um, but also that, that, that the transition um, would, would be smooth, that we would finish well here. And um, so I'm just going to stop here. Thank you for...
very much. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you that you are the judge. And it bothers us to see the injustice in the world. And we want to take things into our own hands. And that doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can't do. There are things that we can do and and that we ought to do. But ultimately, the way that things are going to be made right is because you are going to make them right and you are going to come and you will judge and you will make all things new. But even now, Lord, we thank you for, for this clear instruction in your word that you are the one weaving the fabric of our lives together. Help us to trust you. We know that you have perspective that we don't have. We know you are good. You are wise. You are doing things that we haven't even conceived. It is marvelous in our eyes. So may your will be done, and may you help us to trust you every step of the way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.